I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some in the pew nearby to where you're seated. We'll be on page 943 this morning. 943 in those pew Bibles. Romans chapter 6. This morning we're looking at the second half of this chapter, which began two weeks ago. And to start off that chapter a couple weeks ago, I'd I told you the story about two kings. I'm going to remind you of that in case you weren't here, and also because we've had a couple couple days in between then and now. There was the story of of King Sin and King Grace. You remember that King Sin was an oppressive, deceitful ruler who reigned over his kingdom. He reigned with, with lies and with deceit and with empty promises. He dressed his people up with guilt, with fear, with shame. He did that to to control them. He tricked them into obeying him through deceitful lies and empty promises. And he did that all the way up until their death. Then we also talked about the fact that there was another king, King Grace, who was a a gracious and loving Lord who had compassion for the people who were under King Sin's reign. And he came and he warred against King Sin and he defeated him. And then in victory he called all of the citizens who had long been under the painful rule of King Sin to come and to live in freedom in his land of love. And many believed Many believed that good news and they fled from under King Sin's rule and in his land and they came to live under King Grace where they were cared for, where they were loved, and where they were protected by him. But we talked about the fact that there was something peculiar that happened in that story. That some of the citizens of King King Grace's kingdom, many of them, all of them at times, struggled to enjoy the freedom in this land of love. And the reason is because occasionally some and others often would listen to the invitations that would come from the defeated king Sin and would go back to his old land for a visit. To come back to his table once again and to dine in some of those forbidden fleeting pleasures. We talked about how after they would do that, they would, they would go back home to the land of love where King Grace was, and they had a walk of shame and guilt and regret, seeing that sin had lied to them again, and they had fallen for it again. But do you remember how King Grace responded to their treasons? It grieved him, but he loved them. And because he loved them, he forgave them again and again. He extended them mercy again and again. Where their sin abounded, his grace abounded all the more. We talked about how that that allegory is is really, it's a a picture of, of the spiritual reality that we all live in and that has been described in the first five chapters of the book of Romans. That we are all born under the reign of King Sin. And whether we live it you know, openly and like Vegas style, or whether we try to, to dress up nicely and conceal it and live little moralistic lives, either way, all of us are enslaved to King Sin and are destined to judgment because of our rebellions against God. But that is why Jesus came. He came to rescue us from, from sin's reign over us. He came and he died the death that we deserved and he rose from the dead, defeating sin in the grave, having victory that we sang about just a moment ago. The victory is won because Christ is risen from the dead. And now there's good news that goes out, the gospel message, that if anybody will turn from their sin and trust in that risen Lord, that their treasons will be forgiven and they will be united to him by the power of the Spirit and receive his life and he will take their death And forevermore, they will be with him. That is good news. Now, 
that severing of our union with death and that uniting of our, our life with Christ, it begins a whole new life where we get a new heart and new passions and new desires. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come, right? And in chapter 6, the first half of the chapter, we, we talked about the fact that our union with Jesus, which means when we believe in Him, that the, the Spirit unites us with Him, that that union with Jesus changes everything about our lives. Everything is, is different. And because we're not who we used to be, we don't do what we used to do. We were slaves to king sin, but now in Christ we have been made alive and we are now under grace. And in verse 11 of chapter 6, we were told the first command in the book of Romans, so you must consider and it's in the present tense, continually consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. It wants to rule you. King sin wants to have authority over you again, right? To make you obey its passions. Verse 13, do not present your members or your body, yourself, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, which is how we used to live. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And we talked about the fact that our our bodies are instruments or, or tools that will either be used for sin and unrighteousness or for God and for His righteous purposes. And that's kind of where we, we left off uh, a couple weeks ago, right in the heat of battle. We were wrestling with a couple particular sins and thinking about how do we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, and how do we present our bodies to God as those who are, are now His, who have been freed from sin. And that's, that's where we, we pick it up this morning. Because the battle, the battle rages on. I suspect that in the two weeks since the last time we heard that, uh, sin didn't stop calling, did he? Still calling. The temptations are still coming, so we've got to keep fighting. And the hinge that connects verses 13 with the rest of the chapter is, is verse 14 there in chapter 6 of the book of Romans. Read it for us. Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. God gives a promise here for those who have been born again and united with Jesus. Sin will have no dominion over you. Or literally, sin will not be Lord over you. That word dominion's Lord. Sin used to be your Lord. Apart from Christ, that's who he was. He was our master, he was our ruler, prevailed over us. Day in, day out, every way, we were slaves to sin. But now in Christ, that's not true any longer. Why? Since you are not under law, but under grace. And this is a tricky verse, and we could really do a whole sermon on it, but I'm going to try and sum it up briefly. And we're going to talk more about the law next week. But to be under law means that we, we try to be right with God by keeping His law, particularly the Ten Commandments. We say, I, I will be right with God by obeying all of His commandments all of the time perfectly. I'm going to, from, from number one, I'm never going to have another God before me, all the way to number ten, I will never covet. That I'm going to be right with God, God's going to be pleased with me because I am under the law and I'm keeping the law. problem is that none of us do that. So if, you, if you're like non-religious and you don't care at all, you broke number one. Have no other gods before you. Because in essence, you're kind of your own God. And then for those of us who, who do desire to honor God because God has given us a, a new heart, that coveting thing, there's no way we're, I mean, day in and day out, there's, and it, there's no way we're going to keep these. Why? Because, well, To start with, we inherited sin from Adam. And apart from Christ, we don't love God with all that we are, and we don't love others as as ourselves. And that's what the law commands. But we've got to understand that God's intent in giving us the law wasn't for that to be the means to make us right with Him. 
God's intent in giving us the law is to show us our sin. The law is like an MRI that reveals the cancer in our bones. That's all, that's all it can do, though. The MRI can't, it can't fix the problem. It's the same thing with, with the law. The law can do nothing to save you. It only shows you the problem. So the law is what it's, in, what it's intended to do. We're going to see this more as we go through Romans. It's intended to be the, the, the tip of the spear of the gospel. That as it comes in, it convicts our hearts to show us that you are slaves to King sin. You are a rebel against your creator. You don't obey God. That's what it's intended to do. It's intended to show us our problem, that we are condemned before God. And when we're under sin, we're, or when we're, when we're under law, we're condemned under sin. But that is why Jesus came, to deliver us from sin and to deliver us from being under the law. And now he brings us under grace. And the way he does that is that Jesus was the law keeper. He's, he's the only one who has ever kept all of the commandments at all times. He's the only one who's been a true worshiper. As Shai preached about it uh, over the past couple of months. He's the only one who has ever done that, always lived for God's glory at all times. He's the only one who ever did that. He is the law keeper. And then he came and he died on the cross to receive a curse, which is what lawbreakers deserve. He became a curse for us. And then he went into the grave and he rose from the dead later, three days later. And now, for any who will turn from trusting in them, themselves, turn from trusting and being under the law, and turn to him, that now they can be born again and given life. That Jesus' righteousness now becomes ours. This is what chapter 5, verse 17 calls the free gift of righteousness. We are united with Christ and clothed in his righteousness. We are justified. And now we relate to God, and this is so important, listen. We now relate to God under grace. What that means is the way that I think about my relationship with, with God is that all of my righteousness is Christ. He is it. He's it. And we receive that as a gift through faith alone which is the exact opposite of what it means to be under the law under the law we're trying to earn God's favor under grace the favor has been earned in Christ and how you see yourself before God on this issue and how you rest here and live here whether you're under law or under grace affects everything in your Christian life because if you think of yourself as a Christian of being under the law, you are continually going to think of yourself as a spiritual loser. All the time you're going to think of yourself as a spiritual loser. You're going to always feel condemned and ashamed and not good enough. And the reason is because you're always trying to earn God's favor. So some of y'all are about ready to get that, right? January 1st is rolling around. You're going to start your new Bible reading in a year plan. You got all your boxes ready. You're going to start checking off. And you're going to get to Leviticus and you're going to quit. And then you think, God hates me because I don't read Leviticus. And that's because we think of ourselves as being under the law. But Jesus came to free us for that. Like he, he gave Leviticus. All right? So he is the fulfillment of our righteousness. And we're going to see a lot more about this up and down next week when we look at chapter 7. Okay? But if you're under grace, we need to know that we are accepted by God because God accepted Christ. There's freedom there. We know that we are received by God because we're clothed in the righteousness of another rather than our failed attempts to please God, which is absolutely freeing. So when he says, you are free from king sin, he, like, he means that. You're free in Christ. The law is fulfilled. That's not how we're right with God anymore. Which leads to the question in verse 15. Well, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Meaning, if I'm accepted by God based on what Jesus did and not my performance, if, if he fulfilled the law fully on my behalf and I'm under grace now, then do I get a free pass on sin? 
Can I just do whatever I want? The law's done with. Jesus took it. Praise God. He fulfilled it. Praise God. I'm free now to sin. Verse 15, Paul answers that. He says, by no means. He says, no way. In the strongest way he can say. Being justified by faith in Christ alone doesn't make us indifferent to sin, but rather it makes us dead set against sin in our own lives as individuals, but also in lot against sin in our life as a church that now we have we're like no we know what sin did we want no part of that so now we war against it and that's what we're going to look at for the rest of our time together in verses 16 down through 23 i'm going to read it and i'll give you give us the two points that we'll consider briefly together verse 16 Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So in the rest of our time together, we're going to consider these two main ideas that come right out of of the text. The first one is verses 16 through 18, and we're going to see that we've been set free to serve a new master. We've been set free to serve a new master. Something's happened, okay? We've been set free to serve a new master. And then number two, verses 19 through 23, we're going to see that we must present ourselves in service to our new master. We must present ourselves in service to our new master. So we've been set free, but there's a war that needs to happen every day that we might present ourselves in service to our new master. Those are two big ideas. Let's look at the first one. We've been set free to serve a new master. It's verses 16 through 18. I'm going to read it again. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So Paul's going to use a metaphor here in this this section to teach us about a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality. The metaphor is that of, of being a slave. He says that we are either slaves of sin or slaves of God. Now he doesn't comment on whether slavery is good or bad, but he's using this as as a a picture that they would have been familiar with. And the reason he does this, look at verse 19, he tells us why he uses this metaphor of slavery. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He's saying, I'm using using a picture here that you're all going to be familiar with to teach you a spiritual truth. Now, in, in the first century, it was not uncommon for people to present themselves to either a, a, a wealthier person or someone who had, um, yeah, normally someone who is wealthier, to entrust themselves or submit to, themselves, submit to them as slaves in order to secure their lives, in order to give them financial stability and protection and a place to live. 
And he uses that metaphor, which everybody would have known, to teach this truth. And in verse 16, he says, You are slaves of the one whom you obey. So whoever has your allegiance as your master will also have your obedience in service. Now, some of us would say, Come on, man, listen. I'm not a slave to anybody. Nobody owns me. I do what I want to do. And I understand why many of you feel that way, but I, I would I want to say this morning that, that that's just not true. We are all slaves to someone or something. Before I was a Christian, I would have thought of myself of being, as being in control of my life. I did what I wanted to do. I kept the rules that I wanted to keep. Um, but in reality, I was a slave to lies. And the reality is that we're all enslaved to someone or something. For some of us this morning, it's, it's drink or drugs. That that's, that's where we look for peace. That's where we look for some kind of escape to get us away from the pain of this world. We look there for freedom. For others of us, it's, it's rule-keeping. Moral codes. We are good for goodness sake, as we might say. We're enslaved to this idea that if we live a certain way, that we'll be okay. For others of us, it's our dreams or our goals. And we orient everything in our lives around those. That when we think about planning our life out, and we think about moving somewhere, we don't think about, is there a good local church there where I'm going to grow spiritually and my family can thrive in Christ? But rather we think about, am I going to get as much money as possible in that place? I was at a restaurant a couple, a couple weeks ago, and the waiter just talked about his, how his life is about one big adrenaline rush. All His life is about adrenaline. He would be enslaved to that. He's his master. And we're all slaves to someone or something. And while some of those things may be good things, like, like having fun or leaving your mark on the next generation, in the end, if it's not done with mindfulness to God and thankfulness toward God, and with the intention of furthering God's purposes in history, we are enslaved what the Bible calls idols. And they lead us to judgment. And the reason that we obey our idols is because we love what they give us. Our affections love to feast on fleeting joys. There's just something about our flesh that part of us that, that will be gone one day when Jesus comes, but that abides still. There's something about us that loves the way that power feels. Or that mystery of, of a new lover. Or the security of being a good person or keeping up the traditions and doing things like we're supposed to be done. Or that thrill of a new car or a new phone or new clothes. Or the fulfillment of people knowing our name. Whatever your thing may be, our hearts and our wills are enslaved always to something. Spurgeon said, he said, I've heard many times that we have a free will. He said, I've just never seen one. And that's what Romans 6 is saying, that you're always enslaved to somebody, either of sin or to God. We're always saying yes to someone. But as our text shows us, all slavery, at least in this text, isn't bad slavery. There's another better master who calls us to submit to him. In verse 16, he tells us that we can be slaves to obedience leading to righteousness. Verse 22 says this, this comes from being slaves to God. Slaves to God. Now, how does that set with you? The idea that the Bible says that if you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, that you are a, a slave to God. Is that hard for you? I remember I, after I became a Christian, I had a friend of mine that I used to party with, and I took him a Bible and said, hey man, listen, God's been changing my life, and it's come as I've been reading through, through this book, and man, would you, would you be willing to just read a little bit in there and tell me what you think? And he said, all right, what do you want me to read? And I said, uh, read the book of Romans. That's what I was reading at the time. I was like, hey, this is a great book. And I went back a couple weeks later, I said, so how's that reading going? And uh, he said, well, I started it, 
he said, but I got to right here. And he opened it up to Romans chapter 6, and he showed me verse 22 about being slaves to God. And he said, listen, if I'm going to be a slave to God, I am not, I am not doing this. That's, that's not what my life's going to be about. I'm not going to be a slave to God. Now, I've been a Christian for about four weeks, five weeks, something like that. I didn't know what to say. All I knew is, that's wrong. And I didn't know what else to say. I was like, okay, maybe you should just keep it and keep reading later. I just didn't, I had no idea what to say. But ever since then, what I wish I said, and what I pray for an open door to talk with them again about, would be that we're always slaves to somebody. And that being, being slaves to God, who is a good master, who is a loving Lord, who is a caring provider, is eternally better than being a slave to sin who does nothing but steal, kill, and, de- and destroy. And that's what he says here in verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, you become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Paul gives God thanks for freeing people from being slaves to sin. And verse 17, the picture there is remarkable. We have become obedient from the heart. What God does when you become a Christian is he changes us at the deepest level. It's not some shallow external change, but he changes our hearts so that we will not be devoted to fleeting, failing things, but now to true, lasting, eternal things. We have become obedient from the heart, this heart that used to love sin, now he changes it and he commits it to something else. To what? To verse 17? To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. What is this? The standard of teaching? It's the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. It's what Jude called the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's what we believe as Christians. It's what the Bible teaches about who God is and what he wants from us. These are the truths of the gospel, which is the truth that Jesus says sets us free. God has committed us to this. And that's what happens at conversion. God frees us from sin and he puts us under grace. He delivers us from his wrath and he delivers us to believe the truth of his word. God saves us and that's why Paul says, thanks be to God for this. He set us free. And and truly, God is the one who gets all credit for our conversion. And you see that here. Look, the, the verbs in verses 17 through 18 are all in the passive tense which highlights that it's something that God has done on our behalf. We have been committed to true teaching. That's passive. We have been freed from sin. That's passive. We have become slaves of righteousness, which literally says in the passive tense, we were enslaved to righteousness. God does that. He committed us. He frees us. He enslaves us to righteousness. That's why we say thanks be to God. He has done that on our behalf. In Christ, we have been set free to be slaves to God, which is a wonderful thing because James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We now have a Father who is our Lord and we now love him from the heart. In Christ, we are freed to love the God we were created to know wonderful. We love his truth and delight in his presence. He made us alive for the first time in our lives. We are truly alive, and we truly understand what it means to be loved. That's what God does in Christ. We have a a good master now that that when we submit to him, we trust him, and he always does what is good, always. And he teaches us to trust him with all of our hearts so that we learn to draw near to him, not not just out of duty because it's what you're supposed to do, but out of trust and desire and delight, like, like a wife draws near to her husband, like a child draws near to a father. 
like a nursing infant to its mother. Those are the pictures the New Testament uses to describe what it means for us to be in relationship with God as our Lord. He's a good, loving, caring master. He's not some ogre, some absentee landlord, not some cruel taskmaster like the one that we used to live under. You see, in case you're not familiar with Christianity, Christianity is not just a bunch, it's a bunch of ideas. It's not just a set of rules to obey, but it is, it's a God to love. And then what we, what we get in Christianity is that we get God. We get to know him and love him, that, that he becomes our treasure. And this doesn't mean that you always have warm and fuzzies with Jesus, okay? That's not, that's not the promise of, of, of the Christian life. But we do get a God who is a new master, who will never leave us and never forsake us, who always is good and always does good. And as we consider that truth and we think about it and we reflect on it, what it does is it warms our hearts toward him. And we we love him because he first loved us. We begin to desire new things and follow after him, which results in the second part which is obedience, presenting ourselves to our new master in obedience, which is number two here, that we must present ourselves in service to our new master. We must present ourselves in service to our new master. So God has set us free in Christ. We are free to know him and love him and now live for his purposes, for righteousness' sake. And now we're called to live that out. Look again in verses 19 down through verse 23. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is where we get the call to respond to our new master by presenting our members to him for service. All right? So by members, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, he means, as he did in verse 13, our physical bodies. Okay, He's talking about every part of us. That's our members. And the word for present, it means to offer or to make available. We said it's the same word in Romans 12.1 where he says, present your bodies as living sacrifices to God, which is your spiritual worship. God says that our bodies, which can be used for good or for evil, are to be presented to him rather than to sin. So the reality is that we are no longer under law, we are no longer under sin, but now we are under grace, and it is true that sin no longer has dominion over us. But the temptation is to let it have dominion over us, to go back and to use our members that God has given to use for worshipful purposes, to use for sinful purposes. Now, can Christians struggle with that? Yes. So if you're new to being a Christian or you don't know much about Christianity, Christianity is not about being perfect people. It's just not how it works. We aren't, and we never will be until Jesus comes back. It's about growing in, in Christ's likeness. And there's a struggle. There's a battle by the power of the Spirit to obey and to use our members for, uh, for his glory. But it is a battle. Listen to, listen to this, for example, um, from the book of James, chapter 3. He's talking about the tongue, the way we use our words. With it, our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be that way. 
Now, is that possible? For us, let, let, let's say everybody in here is a Christian, which I know we're not. Um, but let, let's say you're in here this morning. Can, can we gather together as God's people and just now be singing his praises and encouraging one another and reading his scripture? Can we do that? Use our mouths for that and then drive out of here, out of the parking lot, and get behind somebody and start yelling and screaming and cussing at them? Is that even possible? It is possible. But, my brothers and sisters, these things ought not be this way. It can happen, but it ought not happen, right? So it it should not be that way. It's possible, but it's wrong. We used to use our bodies for sin, but now we don't do that anymore because they're not ours anymore. You think, it's not my body? It's not your body. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, you were bought with a price. You are not your own, so glorify God in your body. When Jesus died on the cross and he shed his blood, he purchased his people. All of his people. And every bit of his people. That means your body is not yours. Your car is not yours. Nothing you have is yours. It's all God's. He has purchased us. And now... We are to use our members for his, his sake. In the same way we used to dedicate our body for sin, we now dedicate it to using our body for worshipful things. So your eyes, which used to wander to, to covet things that you don't have, or to lust after someone who's not your spouse, must now be reserved for looking with contentment on the things that God has given, and looking with compassion on those who are in need. We now guard our eyes and guide our eyes to make sure that they don't go where they're not supposed to go because they're not ours anymore. They're members that are intended for Him. Your ears, which you used to love to tune to the TMZ or whatever so you can get as much gossip as possible or so that you can go and listen to, to whoever it is about whatever gossip you can get and you can just drink in death or, or, or you used to use your ear to listen to music that did nothing to stir your heart toward God, but did everything to stir your heart towards loving this world, that now we guard and we guide our ears to now listen to people and care about people and hear about what's happening in people's lives and to ask questions so that we can learn about one another, so we can love one another. We listen to people who are hurting now. We tune our ears to, to listen to music in a way that it stirs our hearts toward God. Or whenever we watch a movie or a TV, we, we hear these things and we take it in and we wrestle with it with truth and we say what is true and what is not. We use our ears to draw us closer to God now and for worshipful purposes. Our mouth, that used to be used to complain and to gossip and to make deceitful promises, must now be used to bless others and encourage others and speak truth to one another. Our hands, they used to hit, we now use to heal. We used to steal, we now use to serve. Your feet, which used to walk towards sin, we now use to run away from it and to serve others. Every bit of you, your sexual organs, your mind, your affections, all of you, all of me, all of us is to be reserved for all of him, for his glory and for his purposes. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to live as a Christian. We become Christians through faith alone and Christ alone, turning away from idols and turning to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We stop living for and loving our old Lord, and now we serve our new Lord, the King Jesus. But this act of faith, it isn't a one-time thing. So that's one of the misconceptions about what it means to be a Christian. That if you walk an aisle, or you pray a prayer, or you show up at the right time in the right place, wearing the right clothes, doing whatever, join a church, get baptized, that 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 is what makes you a Christian. Well, Christians may do those things, and those things may reflect what God has done in your heart, but that's that's not the picture of the Scriptures. The picture of the Scriptures is, is a lifetime of following Jesus. That's what you're signing up for. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. The command to present here in this text is in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing response to Jesus. Every moment 
we're constantly yielding to the voice of Jesus, which we hear primarily through his word, by the Spirit, while at the same time resisting and rejecting the voice of Satan and his temptations. All day long, there's voices coming at you. I'm not talking about like you have voices in your head and that kind of thing. We have that. We can talk about that. But I'm talking about just in general, the ideas that are coming at us all the time. You're either being lied to or you're being told truth. Lies coming from King Sin, truth coming from God, and we constantly are giving ear to one and not the other. That's, that's what's happening in our, our lives. We are constantly presenting ourselves. It's an everyday, ongoing thing. Now, what can help us in this battle to present ourselves to God rather than to sin? What, what, what can help us to do that? You're like, okay, preacher, that sounds like that's from the Bible. It sounds like we should do that. It sounds like what God wants me to do. How? Do, how? Uh, you have some other things for me. Well, earlier, in, we just talked about a couple moments ago that the foundational motivation for obedience to God is love for God. It's the foundational motivation, okay? God graciously loved us, and now we love him. We love because he first loved us. Now, you can't make yourself love God. Be like, oh, I'm going to take my love God pill this morning or turn on the switch or be like, you know, that's not, that's not, it doesn't work that way. But as we constantly meditate on the gospel and think about what God has done for us in Christ, reading his word, drinking it in, singing his praises, praying, being around his people, like we want to cultivate that and ask God to help you. So like this, this past couple of weeks has been a hard week in my life. Hard week, hard month, hard while in my life. And I've been praying that more, God, Help me to love you. I don't feel love. I know that I'm loved. I think I'm living in a way that demonstrates love, but God, I, help me. Help me to desire it more and more. It's a good thing to pray. That is the foundational motivation that should always push us. So you can never stop praying that prayer. God, help me to love you and respond to you in a way that shows love. That being said, I want to give you two other truths that come out of our text to keep in mind truths here to help us to present ourselves to God in worship, okay? So remember these things. Number one, that when we present ourselves to sin, it leads to pain and to death. Remember that, so okay? So dead to sin, alive to God. Dead to sin, alive to God. I'm going through my day. That's my categories. Dead to sin, alive to God. Sin calls. I've got to remember that when I present Myself to sin, it leads to pain and to death. Because sin always promises things will be better when we give in to it, but it always lies. Always. Our old master says that rebellion is true freedom. Verse 19 says, You once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So when we, when we present ourselves to sin, we pursue impurity, which is basically a rejection of God's character, and lawlessness, which is rule-breaking, rejecting of God's character as revealed in his, his commands. That's why verse 20 says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. So, so the lie of sin is that you're free when you're free from righteousness. You're free when you're free from God's commands. You are free when you are your own God. Now, have you ever heard that before? I mean, that's, if, you've, if you've ever started your Bible in a year plan and you got through the first three chapters, that's, that's, what set this, that's, that's what started this whole deal. Right? You had Satan who came to Adam and Eve who had a promise from God, eat everything, it's all yours. And Satan comes and he tempts them by saying something like, God's holding out on you. God isn't good to you. You need to be good to yourselves. Freedom is found in finding your own way, not in following God's ways. You deserve this. Now, some of us have heard those same lies often. And the question is, did things get better when Adam and Eve gave in to those lies? They did not get better. Now, I, I bet that first bite of fruit was great. I, I bet it was. I, I, bet, I bet there was this rush that comes with rebellion, that surge that comes with sin. 
But that aftertaste, like sin always is, was bitter. It's always bitter. Because with sin comes all of its baggage. It's guilt, it's fear, it's shame, it's regret, it's darkness, it's death. Sin brings pain. You've got to remember that. So we're not under sin, but we're under grace. Temptation calls. We've got to remember that when we present ourselves to sin, pain and death are all that comes. And that's why, after the initial, like, oh, this is great, then everything, all the consequences come. Sin always hides the price tag. And he he wants to help you drive this home with a a probing, a heart-probing question in verse 21. 20 and 21. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness, which you thought was great, right? But verse 21. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? He says, I want you to think about it. Stop right now. While this temptation is pressing on you, and I want you to think about how good has sin been to you? What fruit have you gotten when you've gone this way before? Are you not ashamed of those things now? Did it not break your heart? Did it not break other people's hearts? Did it not give you guilt? Did it not give you shame? Did it not take you away from your loving Lord? How many, how many relationships has it scarred? How has, has sin been good to you? Think about it. Remember the way it broke your heart? You remember how it stole from you? See, sin loves the dark. It doesn't want to be seen. It doesn't want to be seen. So what you've got to do is you've got to shine light of truth on it. When the temptation comes in, you've got to see it for what it is. God, help me to have a sober mind. That's a lie. And all that's going to do, it may be fun for the moment, but all that's going to do is going to bring pain. It's going to bring death. It's going to do that in my life. I remember when I was in seminary, um, the chancellor was a gentleman named Chuck Swindoll. And Swindoll got up and... um, one of the former graduates from the seminary that I went to, Dallas Theological Seminary, had recently been in the news because he had fallen in, in sin. And he had lost his family, and he'd lost his ministry, and he had hurt a lot of people. And Swindoll got up, and he read the newspaper clipping, and he said, I don't remember all of it, but I remember that he said, can you imagine if he had this newspaper clipping? The first time that sin came a calling. So, could you imagine what that would have been? Wouldn't you like to have sat down with that man, he said, and helped him to take out a piece of paper and to write down everything that this sin was going to cost him? Write down what it's going to be like to sit down with your wife and look in her eyes and tell her what you did. Sit down with your kids and look in their eyes and tell them what it's going to be like because of what you've done. Sit down or stand up in front of the church who's been looking to you for years and trusting you and explain to them what you've done. And then count the lonely nights when everybody's gone and nobody's calling anymore. Think about the distance. Think about the regret. Think about the tears and the heartbreak. And he went on and on and on. And he said, brothers, sisters, you have to see sin for what it is. It's always easier to do it on the back end. Hindsight's always 20-20. But, but a wise man or woman of God would count the cost on the front end and would be in the context of community with other brothers and sisters who know your struggles, who you can say, I'm on the edge right now. It's there. Or I feel my heart starting to go this way. I'm feeling lonely again. I'm tired of being single. I don't want to be single anymore. And I feel like everything's calling my name but your pride will say no. Your pride will say, you'll make it through this one. Your pride will say, listen, you got this one. Next time, you'll get in. You'll get out of this. You'll be okay. It's crafty. And it always lies to you. Always. Get it in the light. Show it for what it is. You're a liar. You lied before, you're going to lie again, you're lying now. No, 
I am dead to sin. I am alive to God. Help me, Jesus, and help me somebody else. That's the Christian life, basically. It's a wonderful place to be because there's grace there. There's a lot of grace there. When we were under sin and presented ourselves as slaves to sin, it did nothing but bring regret. For the end of those things is death. And that's, that's what sin always wants to hide from you. It doesn't want you to know where it's leading you to. I'll give you one more picture. I think pictures are help, helpful. A number of years ago, there was a National Geographic uh, little deal on. I don't know if you ever start watching those. These things just intrigue me. I'm like, how do they get the camera in there? How do they do that? All that. Watching this one on, on plants and bugs. I don't know why, but I was. But this bug, showed this bug flying around and said, you know, the bug smells the sweet aroma of the flower hands to the flower, and there's this beautiful flower sitting there. And the bug goes and he lands on the, on the petal of the flower. And says, now the aroma gets stronger for the bug. And the bug goes over and he gets on the, he gets up off the, the petal, he gets on the petal, starts, starts going in, and this, this flower is, is made kind of like, you know, like a roundabout little, little tube. And he goes, and you see this bug climbing over these, this like little velvet surface. And this aroma is just coming out, and this bug's doing his bug thing, just going down in there, and he's going around the ground. I don't know how they get the camera down there, but they follow him down there. And then he says, but what the bug didn't know is that those, that velvet that he was crawling upon are actually little spines that only point one way, so the bug cannot back out. What the bug also didn't realize is that that sweet aroma that it smelled are the plant's digestive juices which are about to consume him. That is sin and temptation. It looks so good. It feels so good. It seems just nice heading in. But what's in there is a lie. It's deceit. And it will bring death. We've got to know that. That's what's in there. Death is in there. It tricks you to think that it just wants a little bit but it always wants a little more. That's why verse 19 says, lawlessness led to more lawlessness. Sin is never satisfied. It always wants a little more. So so when that thought of discontentment comes and lights on your heart, it wants you to coddle it. It wants you to, to cultivate a dissatisfaction with how things are. It wants you to to cultivate a critical spirit where you grumble and you complain and you can just find, you can grumble and complain about rainbows and puppies, everything. You can find some way to do that where there's this gnawing dissatisfaction with your life that just grows and it wants to grow so much so that, that it This discontentment will eclipse the rays of all of the grace that God is shining in your life and you will forget it and you will soon forget that God has been so good and that he has been so faithful and that he has never left you or forsake you and all you will see is what you don't have and you will forget all that he has given you in Christ. That's what that little bit of discontentment that that lights on your heart wants. Same kind of thing with pornography. It's, it's just one look. It's not even porn. I mean, it's barely even a swimsuit or it's barely even a model. But you see, what, what sin doesn't tell you is it wants just a little bit because if you just get a little bit, there's a little bit more and it wants to take you down that, that road where there's one more compromise and another and another and it's never satisfied. That's why any of you who have ever struggled with pornography, you know you don't look at one page. You look at thousands of pages because it's not there. It's what you're looking for. It's just not there. But what you've got to understand is that sin's plan in leading you down that road isn't just to make you have a bad day the next day. It's not want to pray or not do your quiet time. That's part of it. But let's say you're a single man or woman. What sin is trying to do, what Satan's trying to do, he wants to destroy your marriage. You're like, I don't, I'm not even dating anybody. He, yeah. But what he wants to do is he wants to sow this imaginary idea of what love and sex will be someday so that if God does give you a spouse, you will not be content because your mind will be filled with lies. See, Satan's got the long view. 
He wants to destroy everything. Sin, the temptation calls us to have the short view. We have to keep that in mind. Consider your temptations, whatever they may be, and know that sin is deceitful. It's always trying to get you to make little compromises so that your heart will continually be hardened more and more toward God. And it doesn't present to you the pain that will come. But God tells us in 623, the wages of sin is death. So as we seek to present ourselves to God, our, our members to God, remember that when sin calls, it's lying to you. And it always leads to pain and to death. And while we hold that, we also must hold the last thing to consider. The second truth that will help us to present our members to God as instruments of righteousness and worship, which is that when we present ourselves to God, He leads us to holiness and to life. When we present ourselves to God, He leads us to holiness and to life. So, we either under sin or under grace. We're here, this battle rages on, temptation calls, we say, no, there's a lie here. There's truth coming here. Present yourselves to God. Verse 19, Paul says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And then verse 22, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So where sin lies and steals and destroys, God's promises, and they do the exact opposite. God does the exact opposite. He's a good master who gives us grace and tells us the truth and gives life. He does this by changing our hearts and making us to love righteousness rather than rebellion. And, and right here, this is where sin kind of jumps in and says, whoa, 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 holiness, loser, like, that's not fun. That's not fun. You want to go, oh, go do you some holy things. Tell me how it is. Like, that's the temptation. The gr- but you've got to understand, the greatest lie you've ever been told is that holiness is bad. It may not be as flashy as what sin's offering, but that thing's bankrupt. Holiness is rooted in the everlasting righteousness of God himself and his kingdom, which is good. What God does as we trust him and we present ourselves to him is he changes our hearts and he makes us love him more than sin. He changes our direction and our affections to love God and to love what God loves. And this transformation is, it's a process. So when we hear verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you, you gotta be like, really? Because I feel like sometimes it does. But what we have to understand is that This is true positionally when we believe in Jesus. And it proves itself experientially over time. As we rely on Christ, what God is doing is he is is conforming us as individuals and as the church into the image of Christ. That's what's happening right now if you're a Christian. That God is shaping you and molding you and transforming you. He's changing us. That's That's what that word sanctification means. It means to set apart, to make holy. Well, sanctification is the process of being set apart. It's the process of being made holy. And as we present our members as slaves to righteousness, God changes us, as 2 Corinthians 3 says, from one degree of glory to another. Romans 8 says he's conforming us to the image of Christ. Now, how he does this work, we're going to talk about a lot more in chapter 7 and chapter 8. That it's not through legalism, the law, but it's through the power of the Spirit. But I'm going to give you one thing to to hold on to before we get to that. I would say that the key, one of the key components to persevering in presenting ourselves to God is to prayerfully and actively cling to his promises. So one of the ways that, we, that we, we find victory, as it were, and we obey presenting ourselves to God is that we prayerfully and actively cling to his promises. So sin makes us promises all the time. That's what temptation is. 
It's a promise that it will be worth it to not trust God and to indulge in some fleeting pleasure. But God makes us promises that it will be worth it to trust him and that he will give you himself as the reward both now and one day. And this is the battle that's happening all the time. Promises from sin, promises from God. So the question is, who will you trust? Who will you obey? Who will be your master? We must prayerfully and actively cling to God through his promises. So God makes promises and we prayerfully cling to them. This highlights our dependence upon God. Growth happens as we depend upon God, and we say, God, God, here's a temptation. And if there's this person at work that I'm tempted to, to get to know, and I shouldn't get to know them. God, your word says in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So God, that's a promise. You say, righteousness satisfies my soul, not rebellion. Help me. I need help. That's prayerfully clinging to a promise. And you stay there until either another brother or sister gets there to help you or until the temptation goes away. You fight and you stay. You keep clinging. But we must also actively cling to God. We are still dependent upon God to enable us through this whole thing, but His Spirit, He's the one who changes us, but we have the, we have the responsibility to engage and to strive and to fight against sin. God gives growth, progress, he develops discipline in the midst of this, and fresh grace each day as we look to him, cling to God's promises. I love this quote from Matthew Henry. He said, God's promises to us are more powerful and effectual for putting sin to death than our promises to God. God, I'll never do that again. That's not really going to help you. I mean, it might be a good thing to, to think about, and you want to, you yes, dedicate yourself to not giving into sin, but, but grabbing a hold of his promises and saying, Lord, help me to engage here. That's where, that's where life happens. And as we do that by faith, thinking, God, I want to present myself to you. I want to present myself to you. I want to present myself to you. Take my eyes, take my ears, take my mouth, take my hands, take all of me. God, your promises are true. Help me not to believe those promises. They're tempting. Help me. And you just keep doing that. That's an act of faith. We come to Christ by faith, and we walk by faith. That's actively how we do that. And it's fueled by his spirits and by promises. And over time, God changes us. And because God is good, and because he is sovereign, and because he is powerful, we have hope that true, lasting change can happen. Some of us need to hear that this morning. True, lasting change can happen. Not because God makes you a better you or any of that kind of stuff, but because God is faithful to change you. His promises are true. His spirit is powerful. The church is our help. We need one another. So as we go, we remember that promise in verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We remember that sin rewards with death and that Jesus rewards with life. Eternal life, but also life here and now. Our hope in giving this message is that we would not sin. That we wouldn't, we wouldn't give in. But what do we do if we do sin? Hear this from 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The good news is that Jesus is our Savior, and he will always be our Savior. So as we struggle, please don't struggle alone. Go with other brothers and sisters and go together with the promises of God, trusting in Jesus who will never leave us and never forsake us. He is ever faithful. So may we be a people who present ourselves to him with great hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is true, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
We thank you for the work that you have done in Christ to set us free from King's sin and to set us under your grace. God, we pray now that wherever we are, that we would trust you. That, Lord, if there's any of us who are on the edge of rebellion, even this morning, or if we know someone who is, that, God, we would not ignore it, but that we would would cling to promises and reach out to those who are in need or reach out if we are in need. And God, if this morning we think that we have no need to be weary, God, humble us, give us sober minds, help us to see sin for what it is, help us not to be deceived by it. God, help us to be a people who love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we thank you for Christ who makes this possible. We pray it in his name. Amen.